Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is December 14th. Um, we are going to put this out tomorrow, which is a Tuesday, which is when we, I don't know, that's when we always put out the show. We have a uh, guest today who's going to be with us the entire time. Her name's Sarah Leonard. She's the publisher of Lux, which is a new magazine that's named after the revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg. And Sarah is also a member of the editorial collective. Uh, we're going to talk to Sarah on the second half of the show about, um, about you know, just sort of the socialist press, leftist press, where it is, you know, what this magazine is, where where she sees an opportunity for it to thrive, why she thinks it's needed, all the types of things that I'm sure that she's been sending a lot of uh, emails out about in the past, <laughs> past few months, but you're going to hear it here on the show and we're very excited to have her. And she's also going to talk to, she's going to be around and talk with us about our first topic, which is uh, lockdowns. Now, the re- part of the reason why I think that we wanted to do a show about lockdowns is because I think that this is according to Tammy, who says that her friend said that we're COVID deniers. <laughs> <laughs> who's this who's oh this my friend God. name the friend <laughs> i will not out this friend okay you're not gonna name the friend <laughs> but um i think that there is some maybe i don't know if confusion is the right word but um i maybe in the last couple episodes and i imagine i honestly can't remember when we said what or if we said it but i'm sure that at some point i was mad that i can't take my kid to a playground here in northern california and that uh you know i express this on twitter as well and I got these leftists getting mad at me saying that playgrounds are neoliberal. <laughs> I was just like, I can't have this conversation. Like, what's going on? What have I gotten myself into? You know, uh, like, what, well, how, how do you have this conversation? But I do think that there is a point that is made. And I do, th- I do, we do understand some of the pushback here, which is that obviously right now the state of the virus is horrible. You know, um, ICUs are filling up again. There seems to be no bending of any type of curve, right? Like, think they're just it just keeps going up. I mean, do you remember when like COVID cases were sixty five thousand a day and people were like, oh my god, and then it got to hundred thousand a day and people were like, yeah, that's a big round number, and now it's like at two hundred and thirty thousand <laughs> yeah. a day, and it's just like nobody thinks about it. Like, it could go to five hundred thousand, I would be upset, but it, I would just be like, yeah. Uh, it's at 500,000 a day, I guess. Like, would that surprise you at all? If like, you know, <laughs> oh, one six hundredth, I guess, of the country was getting COVID per day. Like, that wouldn't surprise anybody, right? Yeah, it's, it's unfathomable now. It's just too abstract. Yeah, the number yeah. is too abstract. It's like monopoly money now. Like, doesn't really make sense. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Um I just think about it and I know that the, maybe I'm the, I think about it in terms of like football stadiums and it, like, you know how, and have you been to the university of Michigan? Have any of the university of Michigan yeah. or to Ann Arbor? Yeah. yeah. I'm born and raised in Ann Arbor. Oh, you, you are. Okay. So Sarah, did you, you know, the big house then, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be fair, I moved when I was seven and my family <laughs> didn't really do football, but I'm very loyal to the U to the U of M like, Okay, so that's the biggest football stadium, I think, in the country. It has like 140,000. I think it's like over 100,000 people can sit there. Oh, wow. And so then I just think about it. It's just like, okay, I've seen a football game. I didn't go, but, you know, I kind of like walked around. I saw how many people <laughs> were in the stadium for the football game. And it's just like, okay, well, two and a half of those are getting COVID every day. And it's mind-blowing, you know. Um, and so obviously there needs to be some sort of measure taken against this. And the question, and one of the things that I think that we haven't figured out in this country 
is what those measures should be, what it should look at, like, and how we should talk about it. And part of the reason that we can't do that is because there's too much debate about it, right? There's too much argument about it. Um, and so we wanted to give three examples. Tammy, Andy, and I did some homework for this episode to present you guys with the best information <laughs> out there possible. <laughs> We're going to talk about, so to set this up, we're going to talk about three countries that supposedly did well with COVID, right? And we're not going to talk about Asia. We're not going to talk about Australia. We're not going to talk about New Zealand because we feel that those are different cases, right? It's like Taiwan, great. We never had it, you know? It's yeah. just like, okay, great. Good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, what do you want me to do with that information? Like, We've been having baseball games with people in the stands for like six months. We're like, great, fuck you. <laughs> Get out of my face. Like, what <laughs> or like, uh, or like South Korea is the one where they're just like, well, we had a pandemic, but we, uh, we were so good at testing and tracing that we never had to lock down. It's like, okay, you know, <laughs> like, it doesn't help us here. <laughs> um, and so we we went to Europe where there are there were there were it was bad. You know, we all. Italy was so bad and then we had uh and then that was bad for a while and then it got better over the summer and now it's bad again and there's reinstituting measures in Europe that I think are in parts of the United States here right um and so that that's basically what we're going to talk about Tammy and Andy how are you doing today good we're doing good good to have Sarah on nice to see you guys um okay uh, so should we start? All right. So, uh, who wants to go first? Who wants to talk about these countries first? And Sarah, please feel free to hop in at any point in the conversation. Here. <laughs> Tammy, what did you, Tammy? What country did you have? What yeah, I can start. Life? I had Canada, okay. our friendly semi-socialist neighbors, and I was curious because I had heard that their or read that their pandemic response, like early on, was very very good. So. Like in late March, they basically came up with something that was like a super good version of what we had here, the CARES Act, where they kind of took their existing unemployment system and like super jazzed it up. And then they also added what I think is kind of like the differentiating factor, which is a real wage subsidy. So they made it so that people, businesses and nonprofits really did have to keep their people on staff and so that they could stay in business. Like basically from March until now, between 65 and 75% of their costs have been covered. So it's pretty amazing. Um, you guys might've read though that, you know, the vast majority of their cases were in nursing homes, like 81% of their deaths have been in nursing homes, which is an extraordinary number. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's horrifying. It's one of the worst in, in the world. So on that count, obviously they've done horribly, but they've had very few deaths. I mean, they've had 12,000 deaths, um, which obviously compared to us, even though their population is just 38 million, is super small. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I, w I was interested in, in seeing a country that essentially did have a lockdown and did speak in terms of shutdown and had some of the pushback, but both because they were able to pay people to stay home, they didn't have the community transmission that we had. And there just seems to have been a lot less opportunity for the politicization that we've had here. Well, do they are? Is it bad right now in Canada? It is pretty bad still. Yeah. But I think like, and, you know, I think they've kind of had the similar curves that we've had, the similar waves. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I, I think it's ongoing, but I mean, they also just announced this huge deficit spending package that's like 4% of their GDP, which is unimaginable here, like to shore up elder care and vaccines and childcare. So I think like them in contrast to us, like it's pushed them in a more kind of socialistic direction where they're recognizing the problems that they have and being like, oh shit, we need to do X, Y, and Z to our existing systems. Um, they also have had, they now have a national UBI bill pending since mm. September. So again, I think, you know, they've drawn lessons that we haven't, even though their stats are still quite bad. Yeah. So they've had 12,000 deaths mm-hmm. and there's 38 million people in Canada. Yeah. Oh, maybe it's closer to 14,000 now. Yeah. But anyway, it's, you know, the number is. is so like if you, if you. The United States is like 370 million people or so. So that would be like 120,000 people here in the United States. That's right. So we're at $300,000 or 300,000 people. Yeah, exactly. So they've uh, they've done about half as, they're they're like 40% of what we're at, maybe a little bit less. And 81% in nursing homes, somewhat surprising, right? Because Mm -hmm. it seems like here in the United States that part of the problem is that nursing homes are run by large chains and that those large chains have problems both with staffing um, and care generally. And, you know, same thing with everything. They cut costs wherever they can. You have all these situations around the country of these horror stories coming out where uh, nursing homes basically had their staff infected and they're like, we don't have any other staff. And so the county health departments were like, well, people in your nursing homes are going to die without care even if they don't have COVID because, you know, people in skilled nursing facilities are generally at the end of life or need constant care or else they die. And so, you know, you have people going in with masks on, cloth masks, masks fashioned out of whatever, wearing garbage bag gowns and going in knowing they have COVID into, into nursing homes. This happened all over the country. Now, you'd think that in a country with socialized medicine that they wouldn't have that problem, but it's like our nursing homes are they all privatized in, in Canada? Are they part of the, are they part of the state healthcare system? Like what, what, what accounts for 81% of deaths being there? Yeah. Or is it just that like old people die from this illness? And if you can stop it, then most of the people who die will probably be old. The reports I read suggest more of the latter. I mean, they, they have a similar system to ours in the sense that like in all countries, even the ones that do healthcare a lot better, there does seem to be a privatization problem in long-term care. And there's just like, basically like a class apartheid in elder care, right? Where you have some of the people going through the public system and some of them going through the private sector. Um, and that correlates, you know, if you can pay a shit ton of money, you'll have a private room, you'll have a one-on-one care, right? So in those homes, we see far less death. So or I you think, don't go. Yeah, 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 exactly, right. Or you have an aide at home or, you know, somewhere comfortable. So yeah. Yeah, but I do think basically the the deaths have been isolated there because in the general population they have been better about managing the spread. Yeah, here like here there's this big movement here. Me, Sarah, I live in Berkeley and I'm surrounded by old people. All my neighbors are in their seventies. <laughs> All of them. So there's one Asian couple um, across the street that I didn't know existed until two weeks ago. And they just because nobody can leave their home, but also they have like they have these gates in front of it. It's very like, it's very strange. They have this comp. If you guys are listening, I'm sorry, but you have like a compound basically. <laughs> and so <laughs> they have this compound and, um, and they're younger, but you know, my neighbors are elderly, but they, you know, the ones there's a guy across the street who's in his eighties and you know, he's wonderful, but 
all these people have AIDS come to their house, right? And mm. there's an actual movement. There are signs all over um, the 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 neighborhood that I live so that, and it's like a sort of it's like a movement, basically saying, you know, let's keep people out of nursing homes. You know, let let's let's do whatever we can as a city to make sure that people don't have to go into these skilled nursing homes or or elder care facilities. And to a certain extent, it's worked, and you know that's why here in this city i think we've had eight deaths you know um and we've had no outbreaks outside of the horse people one that i talked about for like 15 minutes last episode (laughs) (laughs) i heard that episode i remember yeah yeah well an update on the horse people it's still bad you know (laughs) there's still cases coming up and um yeah i don't know i can't i i think about it all the time just because it seems so indicative of you know, everything that's wrong is just like, well, there's one pocket of people in the entire city who's not, who aren't protected. And those are the people who all got COVID. Um, uh, okay. So Tammy, so what, what, what did you end up thinking about Canada? Did they do a good job? There? <laughs> thumbs up, thumbs down to Canada. Yeah. I would say a thumb sideways, slightly up because, <laughs> you know, they don't, they didn't have, they didn't do things that we want. Like they didn't pay, you know, people to, to get free rent. They didn't like completely um, pay off people's, you know, mortgages or anything like that. Right. But they did have a system where they both beefed up their existing unemployment structure and then had this like wage subsidy, as I said. And, and then again, I think I'm inspired by the fact that like on the, after 10 months of this, the people are also like, this actually means we need to do more in our system. As opposed okay. to you know rebelling against like what we have done, so I think I think it is a you know an aspirational model for the U.S. at least. Was that wage yeah. subsidy continual, or is that a one-time thing? Like yeah, no, it's continual. So initially, it was like March into early summer, and it's now gotten extended to the end of this year. Wow. Yeah, it's wow. pretty impressive. It's a lot of money, right? Mm-hmm. And the government's totally. just spending it right out of their own budget. Yeah, and they're just like you know deficit spending it like. This is going to pay off later. So that's what we would want. Yeah. What is the main industry in Canada? It's a good question. Tourism? Short of wikipedia I won't really have an... Yeah. No, <laughs> Probably <laughs> oil, like, honestly. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hockey. Tar sands yeah. and hockey. Hockey jerseys. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to all... Canadian listeners. <laughs> How many? Um, yeah, I have no idea. Um, all right, so um, okay, so we're giving Canada sideways sideways thumbs up. Yeah, they did good on the economic side. They might not have done as well as they could have on the epidemiological side. Andy, you haven't talked this entire episode, so you go next. <laughs> uh, that's um, my that's my fault. It's, it, I'm not saying you yeah, know, speak yeah. up. I'm just saying I've been blabbering yeah, yeah. on. I don't feel too so. bad about it. Um, Andy, what is your when Andy? What's your what's your what country? So I was at? assigned Scandinavia, um, but when you Google Scandinavia, all you get is Sweden results, and I think Sweden's really interesting because it's super controversial, even among the left. Um, so in particular, I don't know if like you all probably saw this. There was this kind of this interview in September. So okay, to back up, Sweden is the country that controversially said no lockdown. Mm-hmm. They did voluntary yeah. lockdown. Um, meaning, and especially for like young people, no, wait, young people could like do whatever they want. They can't gather more for more than like 50 people in a, in a setting, but for the most part, they did not stop, um, you know, going to work and going to school. Um, they try to shelter the older people and more vulnerable, vulnerable people, 
but that actually like um, in Canada, I think you had the same scenario where the cases and the deaths were concentrated in nursing homes and you eventually, eventually you discover a lot of it has to do with privatization and um, the sort of stripping of social democracy in the last 20, 30 years. What's interesting is like in late summer, early fall, there are a lot of people, a lot of people are taking victory laps on behalf of Sweden and saying we should do, we should have done that all along. We are more or less doing that now by default in, in Europe and the United States. Um, and then there was an article in Jacobin that um, where they interviewed two, I want to say like some sort of scientist medical people who were more <laughs> or less saying like, we, we should do that, right? Like the Sweden model is a good idea. Mm. There was immediate pushback from other leftist thinkers. Uh, one was Inspector, which is this other kind of socialist Marxist magazine. And, and, and since September, when that interview happened, a lot of the numbers, it's just going crazy bad in Sweden now. And, and this last week, there were reports that they might have to like ship patients to other countries because they have no more beds. Wow. So I think, I think the new facts have kind of made the Sweden case look a lot worse. But I guess what's interesting about the Sweden case is it really is sort of the ideal type of the sort of extreme scenario of like no lockdown, um, herd immunity, not herd immunity, but like, you know, like let the young people you know, catch it get it get exposed and protect the old and uh, and i and I, I couldn't i couldn't figure out why they were doing this i tried googling like why you know why no lockdown i assume the logic is you know you don't want to do stipends you don't want to bail out stuff you want to keep the economy going this is the best um approach to having working people you know continue to have jobs um and so what's interesting is that you know you could both sides are trying to, you can make a leftist argument for either lockdowns or no lockdowns, right? Like either you can make the argument that like no lockdowns is best yeah. for working people to keep their jobs. You can make the argument that lockdowns are the best for working people to be protected and, you know, not be thrown um, as sacrifice, right? Um, so I think it's actually what's, what's interesting doing this reading. I don't have any conclusions about if it's good or bad, uh, but it just kind of seems like there's no leftist position. There's just like a lot of debate yeah. among the left. Well, the Sweden position was also based in some large part on an epidemiological idea that was supported by a lot of people, including people at, you know, whatever. I don't mean to say that these are people who should be respected because they teach at these prestigious places, but they're the types of people that people listen to, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. people in Sweden, uh, people at Stanford, people in Europe, people at the CDC, you know, who are not everyone at the CDC, but some people at the CDC are coming out and they're saying, look, like, Herd immunity can be achieved in a relatively painless way if you can cordon off the elderly population. If all the young people get in, some large percentage of them are asymptomatic. Then in Stockholm, you can have uh, herd immunity by the end of the summer. And I do remember that there are a lot of people who were basically declaring that that had happened once Sweden's number went down. Yeah. Right? They're like, oh, well, they hit herd immunity right. and they didn't have to shut down the economy. And they had it kind of bad for a little bit, but now it's over. And when the next wave comes and hits all of us who yeah. are like sitting around and are still like kind of like soft bodies at the, right. <laughs> at right, the right, right. like they're going to just be like, nope, there's nobody here. We already had it. Right. And that, you know, that, that part ended up not being, that ended up not being true at all. It seems like, you know, herd immunity is very difficult to accomplish and that uh, it, you know, the virus can just come in waves and waves and waves and waves. It doesn't just because your neighbor got COVID in the spring doesn't mean that you're not going to get it yeah. in the fall. Um, and I don't know, I will say that like that debate was actually quite interesting to me when it was happening, just because like, 
I didn't know what to make. I'm not an epidemiologist. I didn't know what to make of any of it, but it seemed like many edu- like many qualified people were making that argument. And then Sweden got a lot better. And then it seemed like those people are right. And now Sweden is like right. a disaster. And I think that the general consent, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong. Like what's the general consensus on like how Sweden did it? <laughs> Sweden hasn't had a lot of good press in the last three months. I'd say, I'd say, I think their high point was around September and yeah. now it's just on downhill. Hmm. There's a really interesting yeah. article in um, Science Magazine, actually. I got obsessed with this briefly a little while ago because <laughs> of the whole Sweden story. And it just, I had a friend who was like a big advocate of the Sweden model. And I thought instinctively mm-hmm. that it sounded completely insane. Um, so I started reading things. But there is this Science Magazine article that was all about the rifts in the scientific community yeah. on whether or not this was achievable. Oh, wow. And whether it would work. Um, and the public health authority in Sweden basically, you know, chose chose this route. And the article, I don't know enough about Sweden to really judge this, but the article was making the case that the sort of culture in Sweden was around trusting what the public health authority said, yeah. and that people who challenged it were considered kind of, you know, to be like bucking the culture of, yeah. of you know, dealing with this problem collectively. And then they did, you you have this great comparison of all their other wealthy Scandinavian neighbors who all did better. Yeah. Hmm. To me, there's yeah. one guy who keeps showing up. I forget his name, but um, I just kept, I, I was trying to find out, is he like a, because it just sounds like this like culture thing. It just sounds like an alibi for austerity, right? Like we just yeah. trust each other. So <laughs> yeah. the government doesn't have to yeah. spend so I was like, is this guy like a, you know, is he like a libertarian? Like, what is, like, I was just trying to look for the background mm-hmm. of this guy. Because he's the guy who pops up everywhere. Like Fauci, for instance, you know, t- to your point about scientific debate, he was totally against it. And I think yeah. a lot of, there are a lot of famous people on both sides. Um, it seems, yeah, I, mean, I think you're right. It sounds crazy at first. And Yeah, um, I think that it's like, basically, it was luck of the draw, right? And Sweden got the guy who was like, basically like, you yeah. know, locked down the- you know, as their public health official, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew uh, Tegnell, that's his name. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and so now and then they're just like Jesus. You know, we I wish they. You know, there was probably some sort of like you know process point in the process where it was between him and some other person. You know, for them to be the top, top public health official. <laughs> And they never thought that a pandemic was coming and they probably picked one. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, like he, he has a couple more years experience. And now like they had this total disaster because of a difference of opinion. But back then, you know, at the beginning of this, it really was a little bit less set in stone, you know, and I think that we can yeah, look back on it. And say, oh, it was it was like always amazing, you know, obvious. It was always obvious. Maybe to some people it was always obvious. But to I think the general public, it was like, you know, are they right? And then at some point, it really did seem like they were right. And then people wouldn't talk about, you know, like the people who are very pro lockdown wouldn't talk about it. But now they're talking about it, right? Because I think that we can comfortably say that like Sweden did not do a particularly good job about this, given how wealthy they are and how much they could have done. And the fact that they did nothing, you know, I don't know. Now I want to go back and see if any of the cultural arguments cite like a Confucius of Sweden. Because we got like... (laughs) Every yeah. Asian article is on like Confucius. I, I think, yeah, I was, I just kind of, I couldn't find a rationale for why they were doing this other than like the science is correct. But I always feel like yeah. behind that, there has to be some like 
we're broke and we, we don't want to spend any money. Um, <laughs> I but, think they listened to this, you know, quote, listen to the science yeah. and that their science just said that. Like know, every, whereas... si- every country's science is in every direction, you know? So it's. No, like, yeah. Well, right? that's also, you know, that's part of the problem. It's yeah. just like you have totally disparate results from countries that are next to each other. And the size of the economy or the wealth of the country didn't seem to really have that much difference in the first lockdown because like places like Greece, Greece is not a wealthy country. Greece did great Famously in the first part broke. of the lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. And Greece, Greece is always broke. They like knew how bad their health system was at this point. Yeah. I was there like one year ago right now interviewing people and their health system is absolutely fucked, you know, because of austerity. <laughs> And so they just, they shut things down to the degree that you essentially needed a hall pass to walk on the street, you know, um, like you had to have <laughs> wow. like a note. Yeah, they have that now. Yeah. Right. You have to text the government. Oh my God. You want to go outside? In Gre- the only reason I know this is because one of my uh, child's friends is in Greece right now and they're, cause they're going to visit um, their family. Uh, and they're like, uh, I was like, oh, is it, is it? Oh, is it locked down there? And he, the the father was like, "You have to text like the mayor. If you want to go outside." <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, so, so the reason why it was like that, Sarah, is because like they're basically like, uh, like, uh, well, wow, you know, all these things these other guys are doing that seems cool and interesting, but we can't do any of yeah. those because if we get one drop of this thing, we'll we're die. done. Yeah. It's like the perfect austerity case, like total lockdown followed by opening up for tourism because you have oh, to pay your God. debt. You oh, know? Yes. Oh my God. Like, there's no safety net here. We have to lock down completely because uh, we can't handle five cases. So uh, if we have five cases, yeah. we're, we're going to be broke again. Yeah. Greece is really, um, Greece did great. And now Greece is not great, but you know, I think Greece is still better than, you know, for example, here. Uh, all right. The country I did was Germany and Germany got a ton of good press at the beginning. I think it was kind of based on people's, first of all, obviously it was because like, you know, people like the Merkel is like a scientist, right? What type of science is she? She's, She's a, a chemist. chemist. She's a chemist. Okay, so. Right? Yeah, they're like, it's amazing to have a leader who bases things on science in Germany from the research that I did. And, you know, I, I obviously was also obsessed with this early in the lockdown. So I remember some of this is that they sort of built on existing infrastructure that they had um, and they created a very robust test and tracing system before the rest of Europe did. Germany had all these problems at the beginning of it because, you know, all the, inf- all the sort of initial, inf- do you remember when like, this is all just skiers? Like when, when COVID yeah. was just skiers, it was just like it all these helps. people went skiing in the Alps <laughs> and then they went to Europe and Italy and now everyone there has COVID. Or like, do you remember like some Mexican, like wealthy Mexicans went to Telluride to go skiing yes. and then oh they got COVID and they got COVID back and it was like, and then at the beginning everyone's like, well, it's just rich people who have this thing, you know? And then, so, and then of course it like flips almost immediately. But Germany had all these entry points at the beginning. They did a very good job of sort of doing a very hard lockdown for a short period of time, which is what, you know, a lot of epidemiologists here in the United States were advocating, like, let's just fully lock down mm-hmm. for two to three weeks. And then um, let's see where we are. We never did that, right? Um, Germany's first lockdown was everything was closed, basically. Um, and uh, any case was sort of vigorously traced. And they, I think they won like the blue ribbon for all of Europe in the first wave, right? In terms of yeah. response. 
Okay, so since then, they've had really bad increase in cases uh, because a lot of these lockdowns ended during the summer. People go outside. You know, it's the same thing with the flu being seasonal, COVID being seasonal as well. People go outside. They do different things. And um, here in the United States, part of the problem is that you have air conditioning and places that were so hot that people had to congregate inside in air conditioning were the places that were spiking during the summer. And now that it's cold and people in cold areas go inside, that's it's spiking in those places now, right? Like, I think that that's all sort mm -hmm. of information. Germany, um, a few weeks ago, started doing a, uh, I was like, Germany right now has like about 23,000 new cases a day, about 600 deaths. It's the highest rate of the entire pandemic for them. And on November 2nd, they did a soft lockdown, um, which is like basically what we do here in California, which is just that you can only gather two households. You can't have more than 10 people, restaurants, bars, museums, all those places are closed, but schools and nurseries were still open. Mm. Nurseries, I think they mean by like nursery schools. I don't think they mean like plant places. <laughs> 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 There's a period of time when we were living in Oakland where the only place we could go that was open was the nursery, and we went to the nursery all the time. And then suddenly other people figured out the nursery was open. Everyone is at the nursery all the time, like buying lemon trees and shit to put in the <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like the number of lemon trees in people's yards it has like ex gonna explode because of COVID here in California. And those people are all gonna discover that they actually don't want fruit trees in their yard because like nobody can eat that much fruit. We have a we have a pear tree in our yard and it produced like 200 pears and we ate one of them and it was like not that good <laughs> and we threw away like 199 pears you know we were trying desperately to figure out a place to take them and like you know you can't take a bunch of pears you can't yeah. take a bunch of pears anywhere. just like these are in my yard but i don't feel like eating them anyway so um i'd see a future of rotting fruit in yards in, in california um going Back to Germany. Um, that didn't work. Their soft, soft lockdown, which started, I guess, six weeks ago, didn't work. Cases were still exploding. And then a couple of days ago, they went like full lockdown. They closed down schools. They closed down businesses. And uh, they're going to do that to, through January 10th. Um, and a lot of that is because of Christmas, and they don't want people uh, really congregating for Christmas now. The interesting thing about Germany was that like the first time that they did this, uh, their, their threshold for when places were opened and then when they would have to reclose was uh, 35 to 50 cases per 100,000 inhabitants in a region would meant that that region had to close. For some context right now, the lowest case, uh, the lowest state in the United States in terms per 100,000 is Vermont. Vermont is like the least COVID e place in the United States. They have 880 cases per 100,000, you know? So it's wow. like what are 20 times what Germany's threshold for a full lockdown was. Wow. <laughs> Illinois, which is right now the hardest hit state, has 6,035 cases, or 6,350. 6,350 cases per 100,000, which is like mind blowing. Oh my God. Like, per, like that's like, yeah. I can do a little math. That means 6.35 per 10, which is, you know, <laughs> wait, no, that's not right at all. No, 6%. <laughs> I was like, that seems wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, six, 
63% of Illinois has coronavirus, <laughs> according to my math. No, 6.3% of, of, oh of Illinois has coronavirus, which is staggering to that think is, about, you know? Wow, yeah. And has tested positive for coronavirus. So that's right. like, you know, if you count that a lot of people don't get tested for it because they're asymptomatic or if they get sick and they just don't want to get tested, then um, that's nuts. And Rhode Island, uh, I think, is second. And Rhode Island has, uh, or no, Rhode Island has 6,800 per 100,000 oh, wow. in Rhode Island. That's where my uh, wife's family lives. And they still have like indoor dining and stuff like that oh, in gosh. Rhode Island with those types of cases. And so, um, yeah, which is like very upsetting. You know, it's just like, yeah. why would you? You guys are getting That's slammed so by this. Also, there's not that many of you. You know, it's not like you can yeah. replenish the population. <laughs> like, how many people live in Rhode Island? Um, like three million or something like that. Five? No, there's no way three <laughs> million. Do you think it's less than three million people? Like, it's got to be less than three million people in North Carolina. Is ten million people? So that must mean that like. There's no way, anyway, whatever. I don't care what the population of Rhode Island is. But that just gave, you know, reading that statistic is what sort of hammered at home, which is yeah, that wow. like when, when Germany put together this lockdown, it, it's not like they're, they all listen to science. It's not like they don't have the same or similar or some version of culture wars around these things as well. Right. But the trigger for this stuff is set so low, you know, that that it just goes into effect and, you know, it's not like they can sort of debate it as cases are going up. They just lock down mm. um, and cases are still going up, you know, and they still have a bad outbreak. But I imagine that everyone would agree that their lock, their outbreak is somewhat mitigated by the fact that they have these triggers that we would never have. If we had 35 cases per 100,000 here in the United States, like people would be out like, you know, clubs at coach. Yeah and clubbing you know i would be in las vegas you know just be like whatever i'm not wearing a fucking mask how <laughs> am i supposed to drink with this mask on <laughs> covid would be over like, it's done. <laughs> i don't know what to tell you guys but you know um stay in your houses and, and be scared we only have 35 per hundred thousand it means in the entire big house you know uh university of michigan football stadium only 35 people have covid like who cares you know um, <laughs> um yeah so Wait, we have so in the areas where they do the complete lockdown like what do they do to make sure people stay home and have money um, they have a much, they, they, they generally have like a better social payment system than we have here, you know, which is not surprising <laughs> because sure. we don't have much, although, you know, I don't, I think that the first COVID bill people, you know, it is true that people saying all the government ever gave was a $1,200. Of course, that's not true, right? They gave $600 a week of unemployment and they gave businesses some money as well. So, but Certainly, Germany yeah. had a much more robust system, but they also locked down for f far less time. Yeah, you know? I like see. here in uh, Northern California, you indoor dining has not been a thing really since March. Mm -hmm. Wow! So, like those people are shit out of luck. Yeah, and they've been shit out of luck for like ten months now. If you've only locked down for five weeks, and then you can restart some form of business then it's not as intense in terms of like the need to get money out to those people but i don't know i don't i, I it, it's interesting just because with the second lockdown that's coming 
I don't know. Do you see the same resistance to the first lockdown, Sarah? What do you think? Like, do you do you feel like there's there's like what do you think the sense of like the, or what do you feel like the state of resistance against these lockdowns is right now? Um, I don't know. I mean, it certainly seems to be ongoing. I'm in Brooklyn, and there was an anti-mask protest, small, at Grand Army Plaza in the middle of Brooklyn the other day, wow. um, which I was not expecting. Um. I don't know. I mean, the thing you said a minute ago about, um, you know, the support that's been provided by the government, I think the big difference is just that America has made it so much harder to access any of that aid than any other country has. So I don't remember what Germany did exactly, but I thought at least some countries, they just, you know, paid the payroll of companies. And in the US, there's this like, I read some crazy stuff about what it took to get a small business loan and you know like people are going to have to go through this shit again Mm -hmm. um and it's so difficult and you like get turned down and then you don't know if you like spend the money on the wrong part of your business like the loan may not be forgiven because they're not grants but they're supposed to be grants but they're given out as loans so you have to like meet certain criteria it's just completely insane i mean i think people are exhausted with that sort of thing Mm. Um, and it's yeah. making it a lot harder to just, you know, roll with the second lockdown. People's faith in the in the money getting to them is extremely low. I would say oh, really? it's like zero, yeah. which indicates a broken system, right? Yeah. Like I, mean, I have a I have a buddy whose parents run a coffee shop in LA, and between like Los Angeles and the federal program, they've like applied for five of these things and they've been denied five times, right? And they're basically just because they're like how i thought this money was there um and uh you can say this amount of money came out but it does seem like people's behavior is predicated on how much trust they have that the money is going to get there right totally so you have zero trust that the money is going to get there it doesn't really matter if the money is going out if you know you're going to make preparations based on your general sense that the money's not going to get there totally Um, yeah have you heard any happy stories about the money getting there? <laughs> I mean, I do know people who are collecting $600 a week, you know. I think um, that, yeah, that pandemic unemployment relief to me is like the best thing that happened. And I've heard just anecdotally stories about how that has changed people's feelings about like UBI and just general general like government provision. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that could be like a good story, except that it was so short-lived, you know, like... My brother is a restaurant worker and so is his girlfriend and they've just had like such a hard time. And, you know, they, for various reasons, like it was just a nightmare to access like Pennsylvania unemployment and then to try to get the federal PUA. But once they did get that, it was just like, it was a lifesaver, you know? So I think I went through that. Right. Like I do, I do think that has changed some people. Yeah. There's that amazing like Twitter thread that um, Francis, um, saying did that was um, like a huge list of things. We replicated this in a um, quarantine zine that we made at Lux because oh, yeah. no one could think about anything except COVID. Um, but he made a list of like all the stuff that 
people always said was impossible to have that suddenly we got immediately during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like rent right. relief, like free utilities, <laughs> you know, like right. like basic income. You know, it's like, no, oh, that's impossible. And it's just like overnight. It's like, surprise, we can do it if we want. All right. Lux magazine. Tammy, do you do you do you wanna do you wanna introduce this? Sure. Well, we're really excited to have on my friend and someone I look up to in the socialist, feminist, abolitionist, blah, blah, blah world. Her name is Sarah Leonard, as Jay said up top. And Sarah's um, a friend of the show and someone who has spent so much of her life. I mean, she's not that old, um, <laughs> devoted to the cause of you know intellectual inquiry and activism in making our world a better place. And she had this amazing idea of creating a socialist feminist glossy magazine, um, a socialist feminist magazine that would not be esoteric, but would be accessible to all people. And it's being born right now. So I thought it'd be fun to have her on to talk about it. And it's a huge coincidence because I actually look up to Tammy. So here we are. Exchanging compliments. um, (laughs) And Obviously, you're a contributing editor to the magazine and wrote the cover story of the first issue. <laughs> I think it's important to say here on this particular podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but welcome, Sarah. So tell Thank us that, tell us about Lux and and why you wanted to do this. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons I wanted to do this, but um, it seems to me that there's this there's actually a real hunger for feminism right now. I mean. Every single kind of different kind of magazine has its own feminism that it's putting out. So like you had all these like mega hit Atlantic cover stories, you know, some years ago now that were all about, you know, can Anne-Marie Slaughter have it all, Um, you know, like that sort of thing. And then you had like the Sheryl Sandberg lean in stuff. And like she was on all the talk shows talking about like, you know, uh, women should have babies, but also work even harder than they were working before, which I was just like, Whoa, it's like my nightmare. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, these are like extremely unsatisfying forms of feminism. Like, first of all, some of them only work if you're rich. Like, yes, you can work a lot if you pay someone else to take care of your child. Um And some of them are just insane. They're actually like this incredibly thin vision for feminism, which is like, you know, have it all by having kids, but also still working an enormous amount. (laughs) And then like maybe get your office to give you like a little bit of paid leave or something. Um, I mean, it's like a strictly white collar vision for one thing. And it's also just miserable. You know, like Marissa Mary used to brag, she went back to work, you know, like a week after giving birth and, you know, she always worked so hard. She slept under her desk. It's like, what kind of vision is this? I mean, it's just like grim. Um, And so, you know, for a long time or for a while now, I mean, there has been, I think, kind of a cohort of us that was trying to sort of like bring back these really powerful strands of socialist feminism, which are not new, but sort of remake them for right now. Um, And, you know, if I look at what's happening in DSA right now, some of the most vibrant parts of DSA are like the socialist feminist working group. Um, You know, people just absolutely flock to it. Um, And it's like, okay, why? It's like, well, you know, some of the most 
vibrant parts of the socialist tradition that make socialism relevant now come out of its feminism. So Mm. like we're in a pandemic, everybody's at home, everyone's doing care work, essentially, you know, the analysis of what happens in the home as work, like that came from feminists, you know, Um, the whole discussion of identity politics, the term identity politics was created by the Combahee River Collective. That was their coinage, um, which is a group of black lesbian socialists. Um, And, you know, so these traditions are incredibly rich, incredibly relevant, super, super interesting. And they tend to get kind of buried. I'm like, okay, like, how do we bring this forward in a way where like, it's in the hands of people who can use it and who, who's, who it belongs to, you know? Um, And I kind of wanted to make something that looked like the glossy magazines I grew up reading as a teen, which like I was always I mean, they're like evil magazines, but I was always eager to read them and then just fill it with Marxism. Um, And I think it's like create a gateway for people into these ideas, like people who are already lefty and interested in this or people who just are like super dissatisfied with what's on offer and are open to kind of like entering the left through this particular kind of gateway, you know, um, I wanted, I wanted to make something for them. Um, so that was like kind of the, the idea. I, this is, I'm asking this totally as like, a you know, um, somebody I don't, I, I, you, you know, as an ignorant person, but like <laughs> I, the, the, the question that you, the, the, the situation that you outlined seems very true to me, which is that, you know, I think that if you are young right now, you're a young woman and or a young man, or, uh, <clears throat> and you're interested in uh, feminism, that that there's no real de- definition of what you get, right? Like, you have certain visions, which is like, sort of like, you know, like, I don't know, not to be too like podcast lefty, but you have this sort of like, girl boss vision that was put out right that uh, that is very tech oriented and and corporate oriented mm-hmm. and then you have you know well, is me too really like you know what feminism means like it seems like there's just so many different signals out there and that there isn't one sort of defining thing that people can latch on to like is is that a correct assessment and if so like you know like what why why is it like that because i don't think it was really like that like in 1995 when i was like 15 years old and started thinking about these things like it was much clearer in my mind like what 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 has happened i think one answer to that is that feminism became very useful to sort of launder capitalism's reputation so as you see tech companies getting accused of rampant sexism and also having huge problems with women being harassed and sent rape threats and all sorts of horrible things on their platforms, they start hiring women in at a high level to start like sort of doing a girl boss thing. So like Sheryl Sandberg went to Facebook, which was having huge problems with sexism at every level, like the board level, you know, corporate, um, on the platform. Um, And she didn't just come in and make them profitable, although she did sort of do that. She came in and like also took some time off to write a book about how, you know, 
how to be an empowered woman in the workplace and then went on national tour with it. She took journalists to, you know, private dinners ahead of the launch of the book. I mean, she really she kind of bought a lot of people off and then like went on all the networks um, and talked about how she was a feminist um, and how important that was to Facebook. Um, and I don't think Facebook has had the exact same sexism reputation problem since. Um, there's, I mean, I thought it was funny that Anne-Marie Slaughter, who's complicit in all sorts of horrible foreign policy stuff, (laughs) you know, became known not for that, but Mm -hmm. for like figuring out whether working women could have it all. And like, we're watching this with the Biden cabinet now where it's like, you know, this super centrist, really un, like unsatisfying administration that like none of us are excited about. The left is very unhappy about, yeah. you know, he's going to hire a historically diverse cabinet. Um, yeah. But, you know, putting Avril Haines in charge of stuff is just is I mean, she used to run the drone program. It's just like horrifying that this is considered progressive. So I think you know, but she's being celebrated. And so I think, you know, feminism becomes useful for all these things that it was never created for. I think Bell Hooks has like a really good definition of feminism, which is something like, uh, she's like, it's not an identity. It's the struggle against uh, sexist depression. So like anyone can do it. But also if your version of it still has like rich people and poor people, you failed because there are still people who are oppressed. So you can't just have like rich women equal to rich men and poor women equal to poor men, but still totally screwed. Like that's not going to work. And I think that's like a good, that grounds me, you know, because I think you're right that there are just a million definitions floating around out there. And it's like useful to different people for different things. Mm-hmm. So I have a on that I think on that note I have a question about I think my question is about sort of the link between feminism and socialism, which is to say like to sort of go back to this premise that there's all these definitions of feminism. Um, I think you know most people, most liberal leaning people, would be okay calling themselves feminists or being mad at sexism and gender equality. But at what point or like what is like the sort of like crossroads that would make them turn towards? pairing that with socialism and I, I wonder if maybe if you want to like answer that autobiographically or just more generally like why do you think some people would you know intuitively not like sexism um why wouldn't they just go the girl boss feminism route why would they go the socialist feminist route is there is there a reason why feminism leads to socialism uh, you know in, in the, in the yeah. vision of your magazine yeah yeah i mean I think, you know, you can always take your own lifeboat if you're well off. Like, yeah, there's there's absolutely a reason why you might choose the girl boss way if it's available to you. Um, I To me, that sort of fails Bell Hooks' definition. Um, it's a very individualist take on it. Um, I think you can also say that as long as you leave the sort of basic sexist structures in place, like you can climb the ranks, but you're always going to come up against it. We know that, you know, Me Too, for example, sexual harassment and assault, you know, afflicts people at every level. And it's it's certainly different 
Um, you're in a far more vulnerable position if you don't have money, if you don't have the capacity to move and so forth. Um, but, you know, like to choose a girl boss route is to, you know, choose to, um, you know, wrap yourself in a little bit of protection in a still ugly world. Um, people choose that route every day. Um, but I think the question is, if you actually want to, you know, why does sexism exist? I'm not sure that I can totally answer that question to the ground, but, you know, one of the things we're talking about is um, a thing that, that capitalism doesn't want to pay for is like the reproduction of life, you know, Um, maintaining people, um, literally reproducing humans, but also caring (laughs) for a community, like making life worth living, um, all the time that goes into um, caring for others. Um, And so that has been turned into like women's natural work. Um, And, you know, as long as we're operating in that framework, the state under capitalism pushes more and more stuff just onto women, typically, whose natural work it is. So if you think about something like childcare, which we basically don't have in this country in any kind of rational way, which mm-hmm. is crazy, um, you know, what what's the line on that? It's like, well, we almost had childcare several times, but the Republican rhetoric, at least, is, you know, well, a moral family cares for its own children. You know, you wouldn't want the state caring for your children. Mothers care for their children. Um, so we're not going to fund that on, on the state level. Like we're going to put that on the family. Um, and you see that with elder care, you know, increasingly you see it with, you know, bits and pieces of health care that are not paid for by the state. Um, and so women just become the sort of like shock absorbers of neoliberalism. Um, and I think there's like a breaking point there, which yeah. is why I think women have been at the forefront of all these movements. Um you but, mentioned yeah. that sorry, you mentioned that there's been a resurgence of interest in these like debates from the 70s, social reproduction theory I know has become big in, in um, academia. Why do you think social reproduction? Yeah, so the kind of the argument that Sarah was just making that we have to think about unpaid labor in addition to the productive labor of the economy, and that's especially a feminist critique. Uh, and a lot of those authors first made this argument in the 1970s. Why do you think that is that this stuff has come up? I don't know if what it, I don't know if we could talk about like you know academic trends or just like publishing or activist trends altogether, but it does seem like the middle of this last decade was kind of a turning point. I mean, do, is that the sense you got? And do you have a do you have like a working theory for like why it is people have kind of rediscovered this stuff from forty five years ago? <laughs> I mean, I think it's this. I'm kind of curious what. Tammy thinks, but I think for the same reason socialism has come back. I mean, people are extremely screwed. um, And, and these problems are very, very apparent, not just to, um, I think the swath of people to whom it's apparent is getting like bigger and bigger. Mm. Um, You know, middle-class families can't afford childcare either. I don't know if that's your analysis too, Tammy, but yeah, that, I think that's right. And I also wonder if it has to do a little bit with more attention to care because of the aging population as well, because there's a lot more sandwich generation stuff that people are having to digest and kind of think about. And 
Um, but yeah, certainly this whole like millennial population that's basically been lost and just had these series of crises is trying to now think about like, why is it that I am not, not only can I not have like the home ownership ideal, <laughs> but I can't have this reproductive ideal. I can't afford to have a kid. I can't even dream of having a situation with a stable home life. Yeah, like general theory is that many of the things that are coming back right now that are being discussed is because middle class white people generally, but not just white people, middle class, <laughs> you know, people of color as well, are unable to afford the things that they used to be able to afford. Yeah. And so like yeah. the question of school segregation in the United, in New York City, for example, is partially because more people, maybe not anymore, but you know, I think they'll probably go back. But you know, most more people stay don't less people move to like Maplewood, New Jersey when their kids <laughs> enter school. And yeah. but those people also cannot afford to send their kids to private schools, right? Because it costs $56,000 a year. And so they are, uh, they're the first white people in many generations of some means to send their kids to these yeah. schools in Brooklyn. And that's why there's a question of school segregation right now. And that's um, because before, even when I was in like graduate school, when I would go teach kids in around New York City, they're, they're there's no question about it. You know, you walk into these schools, the Lower East Side, there's no white kids. You know, it's just a fact of life. Nobody was asking any of those questions. People, the reason why people are asking the questions now is because people aren't moving as much to the suburbs yeah. and people aren't, can't afford to send their kids there. Same thing with childcare, I think. I think you're right. It's like a lot of these questions, especially with COVID, now that everybody has been face to face with their children every single day for, <laughs> for like 10 months, you know, like. Like there is a there, I think that we're reaching this breaking point where people have to ask these questions. Like, how could you not ask a question about affordable childcare at this point when um, you've seen the alternative, which is to have your, you know, I, I don't know, I have friends who um, are not wealthy, who uh, both parents have to work. They work in jobs that are very important during COVID. Like, so for example, like psychiatric counseling, things like that, you know, um, or they work for their social workers, they work for the state. And like, they have kids who are four, six years old and their only alternative that they can have when they're working is to have the kids watch the iPad for like six, eight hours a day. It is excruciating to watch that as a parent, you know, like it, it's yeah. brutal. And, uh, and these are, these are also not poor people, you know, they're, they're solidly middle-class people and they have sort of seen the state fail them in this kind of way. And I think one of the tragedies of all of this is that it seems like politically the conversation is then po pointed towards teachers, right? Which is one of the right. sick perversions yeah. of all this, which is like, also well, why practically all women. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and in places like New York City, like you know, like it's not like white women who are teachers in the New York City like uh, public school system, you know. And so, like, you have this like kind of strange social justice argument coming out, being like, "Well, we have to reopen public schools because like poor kids are going to go behind." But then you're asking like basically, people, you know, you're asking these teachers to put their lives on the line. And there's never a greater question that's asked. It's literally just like, well, why won't you go back and teach, right? Like, there's no question posed to the city. There's no, there's no question posed to the state. There's no question posed to the federal government. It's literally just fuck teachers' unions. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so you know, weird that that happened. Like Maybe it's not weird, but it sucks. Yeah. Like the teachers saved New York City from itself. Like they forced the shutdown of the public schools when the shutdown finally occurred. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they would have had to shut down anyway, but, you know, mm -hmm. it was like, especially yeah. the radical caucus in the teachers union being like, we have to shut, shut down. Okay. 
Um, yeah, because that was around the time when de Blasio was like, yeah, I remember de Blasio oh and Cuomo oh. were like fighting about when they were going to actually shut down schools. It's like honestly the most shameful moment of like two politicians I can remember throughout this whole thing. <laughs> Like maybe excluding Trump, but like, you know, it's just like these two assholes, like doing Seriously. some dick measuring con contest about who gets to shut down schools. And meanwhile, the teacher is like, I would like to not die. <laughs> you know? yeah, for real. So crazy. And then when they reopen them too, there is this um, huge disparity um, between, between who was going back to school. Mm -hmm. So like the times did this piece where I think the way they reported it was, um, what do they call it? Yeah, like 12,000 more white children returned to NYC schools than black children, which is, huh. as I think you guys have talked about on this show, like kind of a complicated number because it's like also a proxy for class, but not exactly. And it's, you know, it's a messy statistic. But, you know, I had interviewed a teacher and she predicted literally this because hmm. she's like, look, like everyone's you know, writing articles about how we have to reopen because it'll leave kids behind. But actually, like, kids in those neighborhoods are not coming back to school because their neighborhoods have high rate of high rates of COVID. And like, their parents have seen people around them dying, and they're not going to just send their kid back into public school. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, totally. For sure. But it's yeah, like... it's it puts on teachers, put on teachers instead of like, you know, have we talked about that, like the that sort of inversion that happened? Because I found that like it was one of those moments where I felt like I was going crazy, where the argument was always put forward that like, hey, we have to shut down, we can't shut down schools, we have to reopen them because uh, black and brown families who are working class need to go back to work. You know, they mm -hmm. they don't get to work from home, and their kids are going to be left. You know, their kids are going to have a worse outcome. And uh, they they can't afford like pods and stuff like that, which is, you know, I, I assume it's all true. Like pods are expensive and, you know, you need networks and stuff like that. But then every single poll they did showed that yeah, the right. only people who really wanted schools to reopen were wealthy white people. You know, the public schools to reopen. And that contradiction never got resolved. It still hasn't been resolved. Right. And that the message is still like if you keep the schools closed, that you're harming poor black kids in the city of New York. And then if you ask poor black families, they say overwhelmingly, you know, like Latinos are actually somewhat closer to, to whites in New York City in terms of this polling, but like black families mm. overwhelmingly did not, were not sending their kids back to school. And the only schools that are full are schools like PS321, like schools that are, that are overwhelmingly white. And I don't know. I wish they would resolve that contradiction because it is like, yeah. it drives me crazy. I have like a text thread with a friend where it's the only, we text like once every four days or something like that. It's the only thing we ever text. <laughs> we'll, text some, we'll text some article from like the education desk. Like, what the fuck? You yeah. know, they still haven't like, they still haven't resolved this central contradiction. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It felt like they're, at least to me, it felt like they were throwing these, they're throwing these black and brown kids in front of in front of this problem, you know, Definitely. in a way that I found to be like, I don't think at the beginning it was cynical, but I think that they did not realize that the polling and that the numbers would come out the way they did. Mm -hmm. And now they don't know. They can't. They, they can't refuse go back. To like, they refuse to backtrack on it. Right. Like that's what it felt like to me. But it's like, I don't like think the mayor wants to reopen schools because he wants to reopen business and you know like reopening schools gives people confidence in business like oh well the schools yeah. are open i can go to a restaurant 
or I can go whatever. And I mean, this is something the teacher was pointing out who has interviewing, um, you know, de Blasio is, um, funded by the real estate lobby, just like every New York city mayor always is. Um, and a lot of other people besides, and there's no such thing as a New York city mayor that's not pro-business. And I think it's important to, to think about how the school reopenings are playing into that. Not like it's a conspiracy, just like, you know, the mayor thinks of his job as, you know, keeping the New York economy booming. And, and what does that mean? Well, it means keeping business interests happy. And how do you get things rolling again? Well, like reopening schools is definitely part of that. And I think it, I do think that plays into the calculus here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, you're, you're throwing black and brown kids in front of that problem, which is even more grotesque. <laughs> yeah. And that it's, I can't, it's like such a, the disparity in like, it was something like, you know, something like 80% of black families in New York city were, did, would not have sent their kids back to school, you know? And it's like 45% of white families or something like that. So it's wow. not like some, it's not like yeah. we're talking about like an 8% difference or something like that. We're talking like magnitudes of difference in opinion. And um, I don't know. I, I think, I, I feel like these types of things, especially when they're so public end up, they, not everything leads to some sort of backlash, but I, I don't know. This one, it seems like, you know, like the misrepresentation was so large that I think it just kind of, it it's unfortunate because I think it does make people question the next time you do something in the name of like poor black and brown kids, yeah. right? Like, well, what are you doing? Are you just, you know, like, can I see some more evidence here? <laughs> would be like a follow-up question. Whereas I think before people, you know, I think good progressive people would not think too much about it. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, back to your, back to your magazine. <laughs> right? Oh, I have a question for Sarah about this. So somebody asked me, Sarah, the other day, um, you know, why this is necessary, given that we have Jacobin and we have this kind of flourishing of left media, of course. Um, And you've worked at so many different left publications like The Nation and New Inquiry, Dissent. So what is the specific place of this magazine, given this world that we now have? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's always been on my mind is just, you know, first to make something that starts from a place of being, you know, feminist, abolitionist, pretty queer. Um, there's not another leftist magazine that really like takes out as a starting point. It, like some of those things tend to get tacked on over time, but like that's not really the DNA of those magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should say too, that I think that, um, it's good for there to be a lot of left magazines. Like, I don't think, I think Mm. people have this idea in mind often, like, like there must be one leftist magazine and like, (laughs) like other magazines enter the arena to battle it out. And eventually like one will rule them all. (laughs) That's not really how any media ecosystem that's healthy works. And it's a sign of health on the left that there are now a bunch of different magazines that appeal to different kinds of people. Um, And like I, you know, for me, um, the, the questions that I'm interested in asking the types of articles I'm interested in, you know, have a, have a certain set of, um, you know, start from this particular political place. And for other people who have those same political givens, like I want to be in conversation with them Mm. um, 
you know, we're asking similar questions, we're trying to figure similar things out. I don't want to have to like, edge in queer politics sideways, you know, I'm like, this is a sort of different perspective. Um, And I think that it will hopefully offer um, kind of a focal point for other people who share those givens who maybe don't feel particularly at home in other places. It would be insane to think that one or two magazines would provide like, you know, comfortable homes for everybody, you know, (laughs) in politics, in tone, um, in, in how they, in how they communicate with you. And I think, um, something I, I, one way I think about it sometimes is, you know, if the left is going to build itself up to be as strong as a sort of neoliberal culture, you know, this big, big culture machine that we're confronting, which is funded with tons of money and has television and everything else. Um, There needs to be almost like a socialist version of everything, right? Mm. Like there needs to be a place where like, it's like, okay, the thing that that touches you most is is sort of um, questions of of gender. Um, Or you, you think of yourself as a gendered person sort of before you think of yourself in other ways. Well, like what, what's the place for you? What's the gateway you're going to walk through if there's like lean in feminism out there. And I'm just like out here floating, like, Oh, that's bad. Like, don't listen to that. It's like, well, where's that person going to go? Like, where's the home for them? Yeah. And like, I think we have to, we have to be able to make that and offer it. And that's one of the reasons that, um, I modeled the magazine after things that I like on a gut level really enjoyed reading um, like from being a teen up until now. Like I used to subscribe to Vogue like every year and then halfway through the year I get really disgusted and unsubscribed <laughs> to Vogue and I'd like always go back. And so like in this magazine, I think, you know, there's, there's sort of, a, a mix of things there there's the sort of serious analysis there's there's you know questions of strategy you know serious reported articles um but there's also a lot that's sort of about pleasure um mm. what what a good life is so there's this piece that's about how like the soviet union made a um competitor to chanel number no. five and also made champagne. Like the the competitor was called Red Moscow, which I was like, okay, that's a serious sounding perfume. But you, know, you have like these sort of um, uh, like like luxury goods that are sort of like invented sort of early after the revolution, and there aren't rich people, mm. right? Mm. This is like luxury without rich people. Like, well, what's that? That's mm. a good life. I love that. Yeah. And I think like that's our horizon, right? Like what's the point of any politics except to give everyone a good life? Um, and I think that's something we're really interested in thinking about. Like can like the instincts that we usually direct towards consumerism, because that's kind of like what's on offer. Um, yeah. Like are there more interesting places to direct those, I think actually totally normal and like good instincts to like, want life to be good Um, (laughs) so this this felt like a format that suited that that set of questions Mm. Um, is part of it like or i don't think i wouldn't say it's in response but you know this is not so much a question as a comment but like you know it does seem like we just hearing you talk it seems 
it does seem just natural that it would be necessary just because there's so many, like I, one of the things that I find frustrating about the way in which the media on the left behaves right now. And in some ways, you know, not everybody, but large parts of it, or let's just say like people with large followings. But it's just deny any, any questions about gender or, or race or identity or anything like that. Right. Like to basically just say like, we shouldn't talk about that. Right. And um, you know, talking about that is neoliberal or talking about any sort of, talking about feminism talking about all of this or talking about race is is not is not what we do you know and i I always think in their mind they have this like vision of who we should be talking about and it's always some like disaffected teen in kansas or something like that like you know and remember that that kid who was running for uh kansas state legislature who ended up being this absolute monster and then Glenn Greenwald and some of the other people are like defending him. And then more and more stuff came out. And at some point you're just like, this guy, like he needs help, you know, like this. But I pictured him as like the person that, you know, that they're talking about. There, <laughs> it's like He was a dishwasher. And it's like, I don't know what that means. I was a dishwasher in high school too. This kid's 19 years old, you know. <laughs> but um, well, this is the thing, right? Is there are all these fantasies about like who the authentic subject is mm-hmm. of like left politics, which are total, total fantasies. Like, I remember watching the 2016 election, and it was like, either you had to be a Hillary Clinton feminist, or you had to be like a socialist bro. And those were the two choices. And like, I was like, my politics will die under, you know, the weight of these two things. (laughs) And it's like the socialist side, there were plenty of um, feminists being like, you know, as a as a socialist feminist, I support Bernie for X, Y, Z reasons. But, you know, there were plenty of people just like, like, where I was just kind of like, shut up, you know, like, like, they're kind of living the exact stereotype that we were trying to debunk. And I think often that behavior is wrapped up in these fantasies that are like, if we talk about feminism or queerness or abolition, we're going to alienate, alienate some imaginary working class person, it, it's almost as if you get the feeling these people think that only rich people are queer or like only rich people experience um, gender oppression or like, you know, it's not poor people who are tortured by the cops. It's absolutely yeah. Yeah. baffling that those things would be considered marginal. I mean, that's the center, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's just absolutely crazy. And so... I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that sort of like fantasy you're describing of like, well, the dishwasher, you know, I, I, I yeah, please make it more fun. I, we try and do that. You know, <laughs> I think we try and make a space on this podcast to have some, you know, to make it so that we can talk about some of those things without being screamed at by like five people, like, <laughs> I don't know, 50 people with Rick and Morty avatars, but, um, <laughs> you know. I don't know. It just seems so, at some level, it seems so unhuman to me, you know? It's like, of course, like, do you really, like, the things you're saying, Sarah, is just like, do you really think that, like, poor people don't think about gender, you know? <laughs> like, do you, do you think they just wake up and be like, I am working class, that is my only identity. I watch <laughs> WWE and I drive a truck and I cook all my food in the microwave. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> like, you're just... Like the not to play the same game as the people on Twitter, but like there there's a real elitism obviously in that perspective, which is like, 
I can't have a conversation about these like totally important and central issues with like a whole swath of this country because like I've decided in some like abstract way that that's not what they care about, even though I know it's important. And it's like, screw you. Like, you know, (laughs) like, why do you get to say that? And, you know, left ideas are only, obviously they're only useful if they can be made useful to people. Like, like I do think it's worthwhile to try to put them in formats that are like easier to get a hold of. So like one of the things we always said about this magazine and like, you know, I'm sure the magazine will fail on many points to like reach many different kinds of people. Like, you know, it's like you're throwing shit at a wall. Like we're trying to figure it out. But like, you know, we're always thought like, we'll make this magazine like thin and glossy and you can put it in your pocket or you can put it in your purse. Like, it's not like a coffee table book. You know, I don't want a lot of white space. Um, (laughs) You know, you you like do your best to like if part of your work is that you read a lot of books and you write articles like that's awesome. That's like a good contribution. It's ridiculous to not think of that as a good contribution. And then just like use all that work that you're doing to try to make it a little bit easier for people who can't spend the same amount of time. But I think it's as simple as that. It's not about like trying to like filter out what other people can handle. I think like that's ridiculous. Um, is there, Sarah, is there anything else that you want to tell us about this uh, publication or when is it launching? Uh, you know, are yeah. there, are there ways that they can, people can be up on the news about it? Um, yeah. Just, your best plug for this let's go (laughs) totally um well it's looking gorgeous um tammy has an incredible cover story which i won't tell you too much about but is extremely good and i feel like touches on some wise answers to many of the things we've been talking about in a way i don't know don't you think i appreciate that (laughs) and um the um and so you can follow us on twitter um at readlux um, and you can subscribe right now. So we just launched our subscription drive, um, and we are aiming to have our first thousand subscribers by Christmas. We're off to a very good start. Um, subscribe, get it for, you know, like your Gen Z sister who's reading Teen Vogue, (laughs) get it for your mom who's in the women's march, like get it for your godmother, get it for your brother who's like, what's feminism? Um, get it for people who like beautiful magazines, get it for the socialist curious. Um, it's really the perfect holiday gift for everybody. Um, and <laughs> you can subscribe now. Um, we're closing the issue, the very first issue, as I speak, people are working on this. Um, I will go back to working on this after the podcast. And um, okay. it will hit your mailbox in January. Um, so it's coming out very soon. Woo. All right. Yeah. Everybody subscribe. It seems uh, we're, I'm excited about it. Oh, there's like, good Lord. It would be nice to read something that reflects my politics. That is, you know, (laughs) it's a celebration and not just a, you know, um, not so mad. (laughs) Although I'm sure there's a lot of mad as well. Um, Don't worry. We have some really grim shit in it too. (laughs) Um, all right. Well, uh, anything else, guys? No, I'm excited right. for Andy and Jay's wives to read it, and then they can come on the podcast. 
Yeah, my wife is like, <laughs> gonna. She she's interested in these sorts of things, and you know, I think that she has the same access issue where she's just like, I don't, you know, like what 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 do I do, you know, um, like what is the vision for me uh, out there? There's nothing. Like I'm not gonna read Vogue, you know, but I also. You know, I'm not that interested in like the made well type of experience, and you know, I think that like, just having something that feels natural to people's sensibilities and politics is you know, is great, and it doesn't seem like it's out there right now. So, everyone, subscribe, and thank you for listening to our show. Uh, we thrive off of your listener feedback, and you know, a lot of the topics that we pick are because. You guys have sent us emails. Even if we don't read those emails on the air, there are things that, you know, like Tammy's friend who called us COVID deniers. That's weird. <laughs> COVID this time. Um, and, you know, we're really, as always, overwhelmed by the amount of responses that we get. Um, it's really why we keep doing the show. And so please keep sending us emails at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or ttsgpod at twitter.com every time i at twitter every time i do this i have to look at andy on the zoom call to see if i got the email right and andy like nods or like or (laughs) this time he nodded so i know that i got the email and the twitter handle correct um and uh yeah we we have uh some upcoming episodes as well i think uh next week we're going to have a friend of all of us uh tommy craggs on to talk about an essay that he wrote on in the new republic which talks not the new republic i'm sorry mother jones which uh, touches on a lot of what we uh discuss on the show i think it was a very provocative and interesting essay that Tommy wrote. And, you know, Tommy writes like once every five years or so, and every time he does, it's great. And so it was a pleasure to read him again. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we will see you next week. <laughs>